0: Like no matter what background, no matter where women are from, no matter oh, what yeah. country, where you're at, men need women everywhere.
1: I'm Connie and you're listening to Her Hacks Podcast, a podcast created by women in cybersecurity for everyone.
2: I'm Lauren. And I'm Diana. How many of you have had a software job where you go to work and do heads down coding for eight hours a day, five days a week? If anyone listening to this just answered yes, then one, I am completely envious, but two, I am also completely shocked because in my experience, a successful software team doesn't just sit at a desk and write code for eight hours. At a minimum, a team needs code reviews, design sessions, and refinement meetings so that everyone on the team knows the work that needs to be done and they understand the implementation.
0: But a team that does the minimum isn't a team that's flourishing. The best coding teams have great documentation, clear coding standards, a well-defined definition of what done means. They might even have a mentor or a coach for new teammates and fun team bonding activities. There's so much more that needs to be done than heads down coding for eight hours a day.
1: But what most people don't realize is that someone has to plan and organize all of these extra things. They aren't just something that is spontaneously emerging. All of these extras are glue tasks. They are tasks that glue the team together and make the team better. Today, we're going to be talking about what glue tasks are and the impacts on glue work and what you can do
2: about it. Yeah, so what is everybody's background with glue tasks?
1: I first heard it when we were discussing, um, Lauren, you mentioned it in one of our podcast meetings. When you first mentioned it, I immediately related to how much of like the admin work and kind of team bonding that I've seen women do in the workplace.
0: Yeah, I um, didn't formally like hear about it until you brought it up, Lauren. Um, but as soon as you mentioned it, like Honey, I instantly related to it. Um, I instantly related to like in like past like work experience as well as like even in the classroom. Um, in academic settings, since like high school and even in college, um, it's usually like the girls who are in charge of like taking notes or doing like decorative or like presentation kind of stuff. And it's, it immediately resonated with me. And I'm sure it would resonate with other women.
1: No, absolutely. I have this theory, actually. Let me know what you guys think that we as women were trained even from like elementary school where. Since like girls have the the best handwriting or will have the most nice slides for the presentation, we're kind of stuck with organizing all the material, um, putting everything together, but not actually researching it or um, writing out um, the slides, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. And I feel like that's kind of a theme that we're going to hit on a lot this episode. And one thing that I found while while researching it that really just stuck out to me, and I want to lay it out here so you can we can always be kind of thinking back to it, but you shouldn't do work because somebody thinks you're good at it. You should do work because you want to do the work. And because it makes you happy and you enjoy doing it, even if you're not the best for it, and I think that exactly what you just said that totally resonates with me. Because having the nicest handwriting or being the most organized, like that's somebody saying we think you're good at this skill, therefore you should do it, um, and it might not necessarily be what we want to do. So I think that's such a good example and something that we can keep in mind throughout this episode. And I, I will say for me, um, kind of giving my background on where I came from with glue tasks. I learned about glue work from a coworker at a time when I was really struggling with my role on my team. My friend actually sent me a video of Tanya Riley at the Lead Dev New York 2019 conference. And exactly what you two were just saying, Connie and Deanna, is that as soon as she started talking, it felt like she was talking to me and about me. And since then, I've really tried to read as much as I can, but there's unfortunately not a lot of information about glue work. And so we're going to be drawing pretty heavily on Tanya Riley's talk and the other limited resources that we found that are out there. But we just really thought this was an important concept that we needed to share out with people. So if you if you have the time, I would also definitely recommend looking up her talk because she she is awesome um, and she has a lot more information on it. But we're going to do our best to cover it today and also provide some additional background context.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Should we get started maybe with a story that can provide some context to what glue work actually looks like in the workplace?
2: So yeah, let's go ahead and jump into the content. Um, and I think it is a good idea to start with a story, just to really. I think I think it paints a better picture of what glue tasks are, and it's frankly more interesting to listen to this story than have us sit here and be like, "Glue tasks, glue tasks are X, Y, and Z." So this is a story that we created. And it's not really based off of any one of us in particular. It's more of an amalgamation of our stories and stories that people have shared with us. But we are going to give our character a name so that she's a bit easier to keep track of. A junior developer, let's call her Emily, joins a large tech company right out of college. She spends a couple of years on her first team and then she decides to switch to a new team. When she joins this team, she realizes that this new team works very differently from her first team. The new team is pretty disorganized. They have a bunch of different code repos. They use a lot of different development tools and there aren't any onboarding docs or tools to help her get started. As a result, it takes her a while to ramp up because she has to sift through this really complicated domain to understand what she's working on.
1: Emily is starting to feel really dejected and self-conscious about how long it is taking her to deliver work. On her last team, she was able to ramp up really quickly, and participate in their weekly team meetings. This new team doesn't have regular meetings, and she's uncomfortable asking her teammates for help because she doesn't want them to regret hiring her onto the team or be too much of a burden. This ramp-up time is totally normal for a new team, by the way, but because it's so different from her past experiences, she's lacking support on her new
0: team, and it's really hitting her hard. Emily has major imposter syndrome and is contemplating quitting when all of a sudden... Bam, it finally starts to click and she starts seeing progress in her stories. Her confidence is rebuilding and she starts delivering code, but she keeps thinking about
2: her first few months on the team. Why was it so hard to settle in? As Emily continues to work on her new team, she remembers the weekly refinement meetings that her old team had and decides to organize something similar for her new team. Each week, the team meets and discusses their upcoming technical features, and it gives everyone on the team an opportunity to ask questions. Emily notices that a lot of the same topics keep coming up, so she takes notes and sends out key decisions. Emily also notices that her team isn't very organized, and because they use so many different tools, her team wastes a lot of time looking for different resources. Emily has been bookmarking everything since she joined the team, so she decides to type up a single document that has all the important links and why they're important. These improvements speed up the meeting and help everyone get aligned on the decisions they've made.
1: As Emily takes on more work, she realizes that there is no consistent intake channel for bugs and customer complaints, which is causing problems because developers don't have a clear prioritization of problems. She collaborates with her product owner and customers to evaluate customer impact and prioritize new features. It works really well, and the customers are happy, and developers
0: have clearly assigned work. This continues to go on, and Emily finds herself being invited to more and more meetings, and she has less and less time to write code. Emily takes the lead in team refinement meetings, providing critical context about the problem and what they can do about it. She's weighing in with technical solutions and encouraging coding best practices. She's finding potential logic bugs and bringing them forward to the team, but she's not doing the actual implementation work for the problems she's
2: identified. After a year, Emily is unofficially leading the team, but she's not writing nearly as much code as she would like to be. She's working with new teammates to provide critical context and bring them up to speed quickly. Everyone is telling her how amazing she is and how much of an impact she's made over a couple of years. She gets glowing performance reviews and has taken on more and more responsibility, but she still hasn't seen her title change. Emily isn't particularly worried, though, because she knows that she's grown a lot in the role and made tangible changes to the team and their delivery. It's only a matter of time before she sees her title change to match all of the extra work she's doing.
1: So performance management season rolls around and she looks at the list of promotees and scans the list excitedly, expecting to see her name. Instead of seeing her name, she sees the name of the programmer on her team who always delivers their features. This programmer isn't particularly nice to the customers. In fact, Emily is often picking up the slack for them, and they don't write the cleanest code on the team either. Emily has had to push back on the code reviews for this programmer several times because they don't follow the coding standards she helped implement. The product owner she worked
0: with to create the new, system, new ticket system has also been promoted. Confused, she goes to her manager to ask for an explanation and is told that she hasn't delivered enough work to be considered for a promotion. She explains how she cut down on team onboarding time, reduced the number of support tickets, and conducted the most design reviews for her teammates. Her team is delivering more than ever and it's directly correlated to her contributions. Her manager responds, sure, but what was your technical contribution? Again, she's confused because even though she wasn't writing
2: code, she thought she was making a technical contribution. Instead, Emily is told, hey, you're great at communication. You're so organized. You really understand our system. Maybe you should switch over to a product, agile, or even an admin role. You've got great soft skills. All right.
1: So obviously, there are some sort of communication breakdown here Between Emily and her manager, either she was never told about the expectations of the role or she misunderstood them.
0: The problem here is that while the work she was doing was incredibly important, it was not considered a promotable work at her company for her specific level. Her company was expecting code and other quantifiable technical work, such as number of pull requests, code reviews, deployments and whatnot.
2: Right. And at some point, her manager should have stepped in and told her that she needed to do more technical work and less of the school work. But honestly, her manager probably just appreciated that the work was getting done. And so they just didn't say anything about it or really ask about the time constraints it added on Emily.
1: Yeah, I feel like as a new employee, too, it's hard to know what you're supposed to do, especially if no one tells you. So I can definitely relate to Emily on that. I guess my question is why was Emily the only one on the team that stepped up to take on this extra work?
2: And I agree with you. I think that's a really good question. Thankfully, that's not something we have to guess about because Harvard Business Review has actually answered it for us. They conducted several studies on volunteering for non-promotable work, um, which they also call thankless tasks. So essentially work that needs to get done or work that's expected to get done but isn't going to be rewarded. If you have the time, I highly recommend reading the Harvard Business Review article titled Why Women Volunteer for Tasks That Don't Lead to Promotions for more details on their studies. But essentially what they found, the result of their studies were that women are 48% more likely to volunteer for non-promotable work than men. And men volunteered less when there are women in the room or when they're in a group of women. So in all male groups, men were volunteering just fine. But when they put men and women in the same group, the men would wait out the women so that the women would volunteer. That's insane. I feel like
1: I've seen that happen in like group projects where, you know, I'll offer to set up meeting times or offer to take minutes, but seeing it in like a statistic is like, Kind of shocking.
0: I don't know, right? Like I, this is something like we said this earlier, but it's something that I've always experienced. I feel like it can go back even to middle school or like late elementary school, where the girl was always expected to do all of this kind of admin work. And seeing it like studies done by like big universities, like Harvard, is is just validating like something that I've always just experienced. Mm-hmm. You know, and I feel like it's something really important to start noting. And I, I have also in my experience felt. I've always felt like not a team player if I say no, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like if someone does point you out to do that kind of work, like I want to be a team player, I want to contribute. But I don't want to contribute in that way. And I don't want to be like a brat or something and say, no, like, what are you even supposed to do in this scenario? Is I guess that's something that, that's a rhetorical question. I don't know if anyone can answer that.
2: Well, yeah, you know, it, it's so mm-hmm. awkward to sit there and not have anybody volunteer that I do feel like the societal pressure of like, everybody's just waiting for me to say something and I get really uncomfortable. So I nine times out of 10 end up stepping, stepping up. But have you guys also experienced when you've been in a group and somebody has kind of taken charge, whether it's in a a group for school or also like at work when it's your manager or just somebody in charge assigning and delegating tasks to a group? Oh, certainly. I, I've been,
0: I've been noticing that like now that I've been
2: thinking about it and since we
0: first first started talking about glue tasks. A couple weeks ago I've been talking to about it to my other friends who are interning at other places and they it's been like lighting lighting that fire within them too of understanding like what's happening like one of my friends she is doing she just started doing technical work and she just started programming for two days so there was a second day of programming and she had a one on one with her manager and she was specifically told that she wanted that the manager wanted to see her do more technical work even though they had only been programming for about two days and her male counterparts hadn't been told the same thing so i feel like and then i she didn't think of it as any sort of like glue task kind of thing any sort of like oh you're a girl maybe you want to do more you want to be singled out for more technical work or been be or be criticized for not doing enough technical work but after I, well, I talked to her about it, after talking to her about this episode and, and kind of more about her hack, she noticed that, that she just started drawing those connections. So I feel like even ha- like having conversations like these, where we start pointing out the things that we've all experienced, can bring a lot of value and can and can and can be really useful.
1: Yeah, that's really crazy to hear. I wonder if your friend's manager kind of had this stereotype in his mind. I don't know. I don't want to make any you know conclusions. i to any conclusions, but that. He didn't say anything to the males because they're naturally seen as more technical versus women are seen more doing the admin work or,
2: you know, little tasks. So actually the final study that Harvard Business Review conducted, they actually found that when managers were asked to choose somebody to do non-promotable work, they're, they asked women 44% more, like, more frequently than they asked men. Wow. And then- Along with that, they found out that that's actually a really smart choice by men because women accept the work 71% of the time, while men only accept these non-promotable tasks 50% of the time.
0: Wow. That's crazy. I can't believe, like, I can't fathom not accepting, like, I don't know if that makes sense, but I can't fathom not accepting tasks. Is that just like the people pleaser in us though? Yeah. I feel like society, like even outside of just, like technical work, I feel like a lot of like women have been like raised and like, it's been embedded inside to like kind of people please a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that, like the whole glute testing is kind of like taking advantage of that a little bit. I feel like there's a lot more to it, but I feel like that's like just one aspect of it potentially.
2: I think for me, that was one of the hardest things that I had to learn coming into the professional world is that I had to learn how to say no. And I had to learn what to say no to, if that makes sense. But how do you
1: know? And- so, okay, I'll,
2: I'll let you finish. I have a question <laughs> after though. <laughs> well, I, I was going to say, it's something you have to be really strategic about, and it's not something that is immediately obvious. It's something that you really have to think about. And I, I personally find that to be challenging. Like I am not an expert on that by any means. I still have a really hard time saying no. I was no.
1: going to say, how can you say no, maybe this is a little bit naive of me, but when it's your job and you're being evaluated, I feel like turning down work is maybe not putting your best foot forward. And I don't know.
2: Yeah. No, I, I hear what you're saying. I think part of what comes with that is actually if we jump back to Emily, right? Like she's being told that she's volunteering for all this non-promotable work. And, you know, maybe she is volunteering it. Maybe she's being voluntold, but to answer your question, what needs to happen is she needs to look at the work. You need to sit down. You need to look at the work that's being asked of you and you need to compare it to these quant, like you need to compare it to the quantifiable metrics and goals that guide your evaluation. And I can get, we can get a little into that a little bit more, but like, I think it takes some experience to look at the work and just have a very honest conversation with your manager and say, you know, these are the tasks that you're asking. They like going back to what we said at the beginning of the episode, I might be good at them, but they don't make me happy or I don't want to be doing them. So therefore I'm not going to do them just because I'm good at them.
0: I really like what you said earlier when you were at the very beginning about how like about choosing work that makes you happy. Like as I'm like listening to you talk about this, because I'm in the same place as Connie. Is, so I would never want to say no. I would never want to seem like a like not a team player. But like I feel like framing it in the way of like it's not, it's not like I don't want to do work. It's more of like I want to do work that I am more happy doing or work that makes me grow. Technically, you know, like you could look at the work and potentially be like, I don't think this will like help me in my growth technically and this is not in the job description, you know, like you mm-hmm. could look and be like, this isn't like I'm a, like this isn't what I'm assigned to do. This is what this is not what is required of me usually. And if it's getting to be a little too much, you can ask like about like whether or not other people are doing it. You know, I feel like I feel like putting it in that framework is is a really good idea and something that I've never considered doing. Yeah. Yeah. That actually reminds
1: me of a TikTok that I saw you know, where I get all of my news. And it kind of offered a little bit of a solution to this. Mm -hmm. And it was like, um, say you get, you know, like someone's like, oh, can you offer to set up this meeting or schedule some team bonding activity? And you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed. You could go to your manager and be like, hey, I have these, you know, X, Y, Z tasks. And then also this additional team bonding exercise thing that I want to schedule? Um, Which ones do you think I should prioritize? And that kind of allows them to see like, oh, you should probably be focusing on coding or doing code reviews, not this extra task to do. So maybe giving them a little bit of perspective, like I have a lot on my plate. What is the best way to move forward with the project? I feel like that could be a good solution that's like professional and also.
2: I love that. I think that's such a good tip. Like Actually, part of the reason that I I wanted to talk about Glue Tasks is because I had something kind of similar to the story we were talking to Emily happen to me. I was doing a lot of these fun events and a lot of the side of desk stuff to really improve my team's health. But again, I wasn't writing a ton of code for these things. I was just contributing to our overall technical culture and I was making everybody's lives easier, including my own, but I wasn't really able to mark anything off as a deliverable and I wish I had sat down with my manager and said here are all the things that I am doing can you help me prioritize them because ultimately what happened to me was that my manager actually he sat me down and he suggested that I switch out of the technical oh role Oh my god I know <laughs> and I I you know I really admire him he had pushed me really hard to be a really strong engineer But I do disagree with how he brought up this conversation and the fact that we got to the point that we needed to have this conversation because some of the things that were used against me were, you know, one was you're so good at all of this glue tasks and you seem to really enjoy doing it. So I think you should switch your role. But he also compared me to a really talented male programmer on our team who spent all of his free time growing his technical skills and writing code and and no disrespect to that programmer because he was awesome and he was so smart. But I just don't think it was fair to make that comparison when we are completely two different people. Because then when he made that comparison, the comments he had for me were, you're incredibly smart, but you spend way too much time talking about The Bachelor and your social life, and you don't spend enough time talking about programming. I'm like, about the bachelor I know. like you're a person you're not
0: always in talk about programming all the time if you did that would make you incredibly boring right and <laughs>
1: yeah and yeah. it's not like you're talking about it in like a meeting or on work mm-hmm.
0: time. like you're a professional person you know when to talk about it
2: Right. And it's not like, like I love writing code. I, one of my favorite things in the world is I'm a, I'm a freak for unit tests. Like I find it a personal challenge to get a hundred percent coverage and to get everything to test green. And I love noodling through really complex problems and like trying to figure out essentially how to break the code that I've written. Like I can nerd out on that, but I'm not going to talk about it during lunch because nobody cares. Like if it's particularly interesting, sure, I'll share it. Or if I feel like, heck yeah, like I did this awesome thing. I'll brag about it. Don't get me wrong. But nobody wants to listen to me talk about like the work that I'm doing during right. lunch. Like, <laughs> I
0: hate, I hate <laughs> yeah. that he dissected like what you talk about in your free time because you're a person. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, there, like that audacity to even bring up like The Bachelor or something. I feel like there's like definitely some like inner like sexism in that because I feel like like men talk about sports or like other things all the time but I couldn't like I I feel like you wouldn't point that out to someone you know what I mean but I feel mm-hmm. like the bachelor is something that's so like oh like you're talking about like these things that are like inappropriate or like what like you know do you know what I'm talking about like I feel yeah. like there's definitely like that extra layer to that I certain
2: didn't even think about that because yeah. he talked about sports a lot a lot in the office and video games sports and video games exactly. were things that were and that's, you okay, know, huh? those are programmer mm-hmm,
0: things, right? And I feel like that's just mm-hmm. like reestablishing that like idea of who, what, what a programmer looks like, what a programmer should be like, should should look like, talk like, and all of those like stereotypes that are harmful to anyone who doesn't fit them, you know, like the yeah. programmer stereotypes. I, hope,
1: I feel like um, talking about things outside of code or what you're working on is inherently bringing more diversity more experiences into the workplace and that's important we should be encouraged because it's important to have multiple perspectives not have be stuck in this box well, that's not how you solve problems exactly and
2: actually do you guys so i was doing a bunch of different research for this podcast and also i just just enjoy reading up uh, learning about history and and um i listen to a lot of different podcasts a lot of different things do you guys know kind of how this male programmer stereotype, like, was created and where he comes from.
0: No, oh, I would love yeah. to hear the origins of the Okay, okay <laughs> so, so
2: I'll I'll drop a little history knowledge on you. Um, and I got this from a collection of different sources, but one of the big ones that I got it from was the book Invisible Limit, Invisible Women. Gosh, not Invisible Limits. That would be weird. <laughs> <laughs> I like a ghost, um, but. So in the 1930s and 40s, women were actually doing really complex math problems by hand for the military before machines replaced them. That's actually where the term computers come from, people computing problems by hand. And then when we got machines to do it, that's what we called the machines because we are incredibly creative as humans. And so once these machines actually replaced the women, they were the ones who had to start programming these machines so if you've seen the movie hidden figures um the human computers were the ones who were actually doing the math to get the us to space but they were also the women who realized that they were going to be out of a job as these machines started to take over. So these were the women who started learning how these machines work and how to program them. In 1946, actually ENIAC, which was the world's first fully digital and programmable computer, um, it was able to solve like a wide set of math problems. This computer was 100% programmed oh, by women.
0: Why don't more people talk so about scary. that? <laughs> That's girl boss.
2: Girl boss energy. Right. Like six women were the women who programmed. And the computer was designed by men, but the women were the actually, actually the ones, and this was before we had programming languages, right? So like they're going in and they're plugging things in, they're flipping switches, and they're telling these machines how to do these complex math problems. But it wasn't really considered like this field that required deep technical thought. Even though these women have to be able to solve these complex problems math problems, like they have to tell the computer what math to do. It was still considered kind of this like clerical job. But this continued through the 1940s and the 1950s. I mean, in 1967, Cosmopolitan, the the magazine, they publish an article encouraging women to go into programming. But I know, right? (laughs) Like nobody, nobody ever talks about this. I mean, this is when Grace Hopper would have been coming up. But this is also this time in the 1960s is when people begin to realize that computer programming isn't just this clerical task. It's not a low-skilled job. It actually requires advanced problem-solving skills. Like like I said, you have to know and understand the math to make the computer work. So companies realize that someone smart needs to start doing these roles. So, of course, what happens? They start hiring more and more men. Wow. Oh, God. Yeah. And nothing about this role has changed. Women who were successfully doing these jobs are still just as capable of doing these jobs. They just start bringing in men. And this is something called the brilliance bias, which the brilliance bias is just this idea that men are more brilliant than women. Therefore, you, if you have a job that requires somebody to be brilliant to do it, you have to hire a man to do it because they are more brilliant than women and then that's how these jobs started going over towards to more men. I have to say,
1: I've met a fair share of men in my life that not necessarily would call
2: brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> right right. Yeah, so it's just this this bias that society has that men are smarter. And then it gets worse because they're starting to hire more and more men. And so the way that they're moving their hiring model, well, they're building the test around the people who they think are brilliant. So, yeah, right. Exactly. They stop measuring for aptitude and they start scanning for these characteristics that we see today. So, you know, they give tests that, you know cater more towards men's learning styles. So they give them math problems that men were specifically taught to solve because men and women weren't educated in the same ways. They start, like, all of the tests are pretty standard. So men who who at the time tended to be better networks through things like fraternities, they could get the answers to these tests. So men could come in more prepared and this is the real kicker and you guys are probably going to lose your mind but <laughs> and this one makes me mad and i'm sorry i'm going to get a little heated but in 1967 this very well read psychological paper was published and it listed the quote striking characteristics of programmers as quote a disinterest in people oh and a quote dislike of activities involving close personal oh interaction my God.
1: Oh, <laughs> even
2: my god. the anti-social engineer more. <laughs> oh god. Yeah. Right? So then companies are like, oh, this is what an engineer must look like. So then companies begin to hire these people because their profile matches what they are told a programmer looks like. Well, what happens when you hire people and you give them an opportunity? They take the job and they do it. Like you you've just given them this huge advantage. So of course the people who match this stereotype then become like they start to inform this stereotype. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that we just can't get and away from. And here we from. are making a podcast. Of, um. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. And now here we are 50 some years later, you know. In the minority. <laughs> still in the, yeah, in the minority. Doing better, doing better. But still being held to that same stereotype from 1967. It's so funny that it started out
0: as women doing the technical work and, like, the men doing more of the, like, the design and, like, the planning for it. And the women just, like, went in and, like, mm-hmm. actually implement everything. And now it's, like, in reverse. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like even, like, Emily's story, she was the one who's coming up with solutions and being really creative and getting really, like, technically involved. She's, she just wasn't doing the implementations.
2: And she doesn't get rewarded for it either. <laughs> yeah. And not only is she not rewarded for it, but her manager is telling her... Hey, change your role. Like let's not, right. he's not saying let's, you know, I see value in you. I see potential in you. Let's refocus your energy. He's saying, right. Hey, fundamentally, because you are good at doing soft skills, communication type things. I don't think you are an engineer.
0: I don't oh think God. you act
2: like an engineer. I don't think you behave like an engineer. I don't think you look like an engineer. So how can we get ahead? I absolutely yeah. I feel hate like that. that's
1: putting the role of an engineer into a box. Like, why can't engineers be social? Why can't we be good at organizing but
0: also technical? Mm-hmm. I just hate that it's just like the self-approach training cycle of like this stereotype that just we can't escape from. And I feel like it it's rooted in so many mm-hmm. other things like we've talked about at Fit. But I feel like a lot of it is also ingrained in how we evaluate our employees. Like a lot of like evaluations are all like like what we mentioned earlier, like quantifiable technical numbers that I don't that don't describe I don't think they describe like the meaningful like well-rounded work it Mm -hmm. takes to to run and to be in a successful like software engineering team it's well-rounded you have to communicate you have to be organized you have to be meticulous in more ways than just sitting down and programming like people if people just program for eight hours you'd go you'd get nowhere like the the well the the work is mm-hmm. is so much more than that and it's not rewarded and it's not involved in evaluations it's not the metrics by it's on a pull request it's not a single it's not a single number of code like lines of code added and it's not a number of tests passed it's 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 and i think evaluations and how they how they function have to like structurally change in order to help us
2: go in the right direction i i I agree with you and i think this this programmer stereotype it's really dangerous right because one i think it's worth pointing out that it disproportionately affects women because 75% of the world's unpaid care work, like we're talking things like taking care of children, sick family members, even things like doing household chores. 75% of the world's work is done by women. So women are therefore doing this work. Therefore, they have less free time. So then they can't devote as much time to be obsessed with computers and to do these extra stereotypically like programmer activities. So then that reflects more poorly on them. I don't know. I just get I get really frustrated by it. And I just think like, you know, nobody is really talking about or maybe not enough people are talking about how harmful it is and then the consequences of leaving a technical role, even if you don't necessarily want to, but you feel pressured out of it
0: right of course because even like like if someone told like if someone that I really value told me that I wasn't technical of love, love I'd believe them and that sucks mm-hmm. that, that's so like terrible like I feel like it's hard enough to like to like to do well and to have the self-confidence to go along in this industry I can't imagine how much like worse it is if like even the people who are supposed to be like like managing you or like mentoring you or whatever
2: tell you that you're not like technical like that's That's really terrible. You know, there's. I feel like there's a lot of prejudice in the industry against non-engineering or non-technical roles. So once you make that switch over, like if you listen to that bad advice of a manager or a peer who just says you, quote, don't look like an engineer, then it's really hard to come back. Like you might even have to come back in at a lower role than you were in before you left. You know, like. Even though those skills don't just evaporate, like there's this stigma in engineering, I feel like that as soon as you take engineer off of your title, people just treat you differently.
0: I feel like that is also probably especially worse for women. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like for men it might be easier. That might be just like an assumption. But like I don't know, I I have a feeling that if like a man were to come back from being not technical for a while, he'd find it easier
2: to find like technical job. Have you guys ever gotten the feedback not technical I, enough? I, or like yes, know of people I have gotten
0: I've <laughs> I've had a couple <laughs> friends who like from their professors or their managers, their jobs have been told that, and it is just, it's really detrimental. It's really detrimental to have people with that kind of power, and and because you because you respect the people, you respect the people who are professors or who end up being mm-hmm. your your bosses, and you think they have been around for so long, and they're probably right. Like they've managed so many people, they've taught so many people, like but. Like in reality, like they're just as affected of the stereotypes that give us imposter syndrome as we are. Like, you know, like when we like self reflecting mm-hmm. we have to like hype ourselves up and be like, no, like I'm in the right. Like I'm, this is just like the imposter syndrome. Like they're equally affected by that too. And it's coming from everywhere and it sucks, but it's something to like that we should be reminding ourselves constantly. And we should remind our friends of that too, is it's like, no one is more I don't believe no one is more technical than anyone else. If even if you have more interests and you're well-rounded, that doesn't mean that you're not as good technically in one field, you know?
2: I 100% agree. Like not technical enough is just a phrase that burns me to my core. (laughs) And I will try not to go off on a tangent, but exactly like what you're saying, it's just not specific. And it's basically stating like you don't match the stereotype in my head. And oh, it just it just frustrates me so much to hear somebody say not technical because what I assume is happening in the back of their brain is that they didn't have anything specific to say to me. They just didn't think I'd be a good fit. So if anybody out there is considering using the feedback, not technical enough, just say exactly what you mean. Right. And that's
0: so much more helpful like, if someone tells you you need to be more technical, well, how does that help them? Like, how does that help? Like, what does that mean? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, what can I, like, you give me some quantifiable or some ce- specific tasks that I can work on to be whatever you think of as more technical, you know? Like, that's not constructive or yeah, helpful to anyone. Is so broad. Like, what, what does that entail? In a sense, it's even hypocritical because
1: they're judging you, your evaluation saying you're not technical enough, but they're not giving you any
2: feedback or metrics to get you farther. so let let's take a jump back to Emily and instead of giving her the feedback not not technical enough or telling her to change roles, what are some actionable things that Emily and her manager could do to kind of course correct to get her to succeed in a technical role?
1: Yeah, I feel like um you really gotta just sit down with your manager and be like, what? steps do I need to take in order to get promoted in order to complete this deliverable? What do you need me to do Mm -hmm. um, instead of kind of like guessing? And
0: no, I definitely agree with that. I think having like that kind of conversation with your manager about like asking like more tangible questions and being more straightforward about like whether or not the work you're doing is promotable work. Like Connie said earlier, like what are my priorities? Like do you like all these tasks you've given me that aren't necessarily like technical, like are these as of like high priority? Like mm-hmm. how does your work compare to your peers who do get regularly promoted? Like what kind of tasks do they
2: have? Mm-hmm. Like maybe you're just giving me the wrong tasks that don't help me get promoted. Yeah. Deanna, that's such a good point. That last thing you said about how does my work compare to my peers who are getting recognized? I feel like that gets overlooked so often, but it's so important because how can you know where you are in your career not that you should be comparing yourself throughout your entire career but like how do you know that the tasks that you are doing are meaningful compared to those around you and i i think getting that like that marker will help you better inform like what work to take i, I think that was just such a good yeah. point
0: certainly because like at the end of the day they're like a little bit comparing you to your peers side who's getting promoted mm-hmm. so, like if they're not giving you work to set you up for success and you have to have that conversation with them because it's inhibiting you.
2: Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah. And on the other side
1: of this, like what if, you know, we're in the position of the manager, what are we looking for? How can we kind of approach this conversation?
2: Yeah, I think if you're coming from the manager perspective, if your direct report brings this up with you, that's awesome. And you should kind of let them guide the conversation, but you need to be brutally honest. And direct with them like it's I think regardless of which side of this conversation you're on, it's going to be tough because you're in a position where you're going to have to course correct. I feel like generally people who are in the situation of being glue are already high performers, so it shouldn't be too hard to reset those expectations, but you need to be very clear with what those expectations are and you can't leave any room for ambiguity. And I think you need to help your direct report come up with a plan of actionable steps to give them more promotable work and make sure they understand what that looks like. And if they don't come to you, then you should just initiate that conversation. I don't think any of the rules, the rules change other than you've noticed that they're glue and then you step in to kind of course correct. And you know what? It might not bother them that they're glue. They might not be looking for that next promotion, but if they are, they're really going to appreciate you kind of stepping in and helping them because at least in my experience, that's what a manager and my expectations that I have for my manager is that they should be helping to guide your career. And when they notice you get off the track, kind of pulling you, pulling you back in, um, and I think another thing that gets overlooked is helping them unburden some of that glue task and helping distribute it more evenly across their teammates. Right.
0: So like you have this conversation with your manager what, and, or your direct report or whoever is above you. Um, what do you do after that? Like what what can you do after that conversation?
2: So I think you know, coming up, coming up with that actionable plan is huge. And then if you and your manager decide that doing some of that glue work is still necessary to your job function, I will honestly say the next step is getting a meaningful title. (laughs) Like even if the work you're doing isn't changing, having that extra title is like technical lead or customer experience lead. Like it just changes the way everybody perceives your task.
1: Yeah. Also it, goes into your job description, then you have kind of a reason for why you're doing all these glue tasks instead of doing something that is not required or expected of you.
2: Yeah. And I mean, it gives you a reason to be doing what you're doing. Like I can just share a quick story from my past. And uh, I said quick, but as you guys will soon come to learn pretty much every short, every story I share, I'll say is quick, but I take much too long <laughs> to tell it. That's what, <laughs> <laughs> that's what. That's one of my crowning uh, personality traits is that I, I give more context than is needed. But for me, my, my experience with this is right at the beginning of the pandemic, my team went fully remote and we had three Really influential people leave on my team within six weeks of each other. My product owner left, my scrum master left, my tech lead left. And March or April 2020 was already incredibly chaotic. So it was just like nobody knew what was happening with the world. It was just a complete like, you didn't know what was happening with your life. You didn't feel safe. And then my company. On top of that, instituted a hiring freeze, so we couldn't bring anyone new in to fill our open roles. So then we started sharing resources. Um, We started sharing a product owner. We started sharing a scrum master. So we didn't have anybody's one like fully focused attention on my team. And because of that, I feel like things were starting to slip through the cracks. Um, Now, I wasn't the most experienced person on my team. I hadn't been in the industry the longest, but I had been on my team the longest and I had a lot of context. So I kind of slid unofficially into this tech lead role for my team. And I started taking on more and more responsibility, but I felt like I constantly had this pit in my stomach because I was worried that my teammates would think about me like jumping in and taking over without being asked to was me like stepping out of line. Right. Like I thought people would just assume that I saw too much of myself or, or whatever. Right. Like I was just super nervous about the way that my teammates were perceiving me. And as a result of that, like, I just had this anxiety all the time. I thought about every move I was going to make a zillion times before I did it. And then on top of that, doing this extra side of the desk work was eating into my personal development time. So I wasn't being, I wasn't able to like deliver as much as I had in the past. And I felt really stressed because I was just worried that I wasn't presenting myself in the best light. And I also was having a really hard time being included on emails and meetings, um, which regarded my team because I was essentially leading the team, but I wasn't the one who was being CC'd on all of the communications. It was another guy on my team who wasn't doing nearly as much as I was at the time. And I remember at one point, basically breaking down in a one-on-one with my manager because I didn't understand like why I was being excluded from this communications, even though I was doing a lot of the work. You know, I kept asking myself these questions like, am I being excluded because people don't know that I'm doing this work? Or do they doubt that I'm smart enough to do this work? Like, am I lacking an official title because they're just waiting to replace me? And I think in a lot of ways, actually, that summer of doing this work unofficially really broke me because I was just consistently doubting myself. I was doubting my judgment and I was doubting my abilities. And even though come to find out after a really honest conversation with my manager, I was doing these responsibilities really well, but I had just internalized this and I had put a lot of this pressure on myself and I hadn't told anybody about it And I had to have a really honest conversation with my manager, who is awesome. She is like a work mom. And that's when I realized like how much I had hidden and how much I had just felt the need to prove myself, but also was consistently doubting myself. And after having this honest conversation with her, we decided that giving me the official title, I had earned it. And that's what I kind of needed to make myself feel better and I honestly I know it sounds silly, but after I got that official title and it was like officially announced, I felt so much better because it told others that I belonged, but it also affirmed to me that I deserved to be there and that the work that I was doing wasn't going unrecognized and that I should continue to be doing that work. So kind of all all of that to say like, you know, the the title while it might seem kind of trivial, it can be really important and affirming, even if it doesn't appear that important from the outside.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like it even like validates you and your work a little bit
0: more. It's so unfortunate because at the end of the day, it ended up making you question yourself and your own beliefs and like how you perceived yourself. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that is really like draining and really like just exhausting to kind of have to go through and it affects like how you like it bleeds Mm -hmm. into even like your personal life and like a lot of just it it can consume you a lot so that is really like just unfortunate and like terrible that you had to kind of go through that and I'm glad you're sharing this with us now so we can uh, like us like me and Connie and like the (laughs) listeners can like learn and like remember like to not question ourselves like that and like to ask for
2: like a change in title, because that can make all of the difference. Definitely. I mean, I feel like too, as women, we spend so much energy having to justify to others why we're present. Like if somebody looks at a man in an engineering room, like they don't assume that they're the scrum master or they're the product owner. Like they assume that that man is there to code. But with a woman, you have to like, I don't know if you guys feel this pressure, but I feel it all the time. And a lot of my coworkers have described it to me as well. It's like, you have to go in and kind of lay your credentials on the table and say like, I'm a developer. I'm here to write code. Right. (laughs) Because I can't tell you how many times like I've had to work with other teams and they'll come up to me and be like, oh, you're the product owner for this team, right? Or, oh, like start talking to me about scrum deliveries. And I'm like, that that's not my job. I'm like oh wait, you're an engineer? And it's like, <laughs> oh man. That <laughs> having that title, it would make me feel a lot less uh a lot less frustrated, I'll tell you that. So far we've
0: had like we have like conversations and titles. Is there anything we can do if we're glue? If we're like the people who are doing the glue tasks and we've just kind of been put in this situation? Like what do you do once you've got, like when you're in that position?
2: Yeah, I think another really important piece is telling your story and telling your story in a way that really showcases and emphasizes the impact of your glue tasks. So if you think about when you're doing your performance review or your self appraisal or a write-up or even just having a conversation with your manager, Really emphasizing, due to my work or my technical judgment, this thing happened. Um, Like really emphasizing your role. So like, for example, if we go back to Emily, she could say something to, uh, she could say something like, I created and shared coding best practices within my team. The adoption of these best practices directly led to a 48% decrease in the time spent on a code reviews, a 28% reduction in production bugs, and then a 45% increase in test coverage. And that gives each developer on the team three hours more a week to spend on feature work. like Something like that that really says, because of this, here are the outcomes, and here's why you, boss, manager, whoever should care.
1: I think having those percentages or giving your boss, manager, whatever, kind of a breakdown of how much those glue tasks really make an impact on your project will give them something tangible to help them like reward you or recognize kind of the work that you're spending all this time doing.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think one thing too, that's like really important to keep in mind, I hear this question a lot because I will mentor our Um, new hires at work. And the question that I hear all the time is, oh, how do I remember everything that I've done throughout the year? There's so much stuff. And like, how do I know what to write about? My answer to that is keep a running list throughout the entire year of what you've done and then the results that that had. Like you might pick up one or two smaller pieces of work, but then realize by the middle of the year, hey, that work was actually some of the more important work that I did because it was important to the business. Because in most companies, the business is what pays the bills. And what what I mean by that is like, tech generally is not the one making money, right? Like it's selling your product or bringing customers in and having them use your product that makes the money. So delivering those features that the business can sell out, um, that's where the money is. So being able to position your work in that context and you know, really selling like how important your work is. I think that that's, that's super important. And I like to pick a theme for the year. So some years it's like, this is my year to focus on learning. This was my year to focus on growing. Uh, This was my year that I focused on delivery or leading or whatever, whatever your theme is, and then use that list that you've been creating as supportive evidence to really build this narrative that really like sells who you are and what you're doing. And it it really is the story that you're telling. Like, I would say I'm Lauren and I'm important because I'm Lauren, I've done this work and it's important because, and that's really, really critical to people seeing you because like, you could do a lot of amazing stuff, but if you can't market yourself or say why that's important, nobody cares.
1: Yeah, this is actually something my manager had me do in my internship is kind of like jotting down the tasks that I've been working on. um, And then every like week or two weeks um, saying what I've learned and what I like how this contributed to my goals that I set in the beginning. So I definitely think it's a really useful tool to keep in mind as you're working um mm-hmm. so that you're you know that you're aligning with your own goals yeah for sure as well as what your project is expecting of you
0: no I feel like I am also like kind of like working on like how to kind of like flex or like not flex but like talk about my like accomplishments or like brag about what I've done because like I feel like I have been taught like growing up to be like humble about what you've mm-hmm. been doing I feel like bragging is mm-hmm. like a learned skill like I feel like I, I have to like like th- consciously think about doing it and getting better at it mm-hmm. in this kind of scenario
2: it 100% is um I think we're actually planning to do a whole episode on it because it's really hard to shift your mind from the we team aspect to the me I but it's really important when you're telling the story about yourself to mm-hmm. use you like use first person tone because that's, that's your opportunity to brag on yourself and it's going to feel really weird and it's going to feel like, no, we did this as a team and why am I taking the credit for you But or taking the credit for it? But at the end of the day, it's all about you and what you're doing. It's it's your career. So you do have to put the spotlight back on yourself, which if you're like me, I 100% hate to be in the focus of the spotlight, but it's something that you've got to do to get yourself where you want to go and to really grow your career and and push yourself forward.
1: All right. So what happens if we just like, worst case scenario, like what happens if you're doing all these tasks, glue tasks, but not still not getting recognized?
2: So at that point, I say just stop doing them until you get promoted. Really? Yeah. I say stop entirely. And I know you're like, what? Uh," And it's going to hurt your soul a little bit. But the way that I see it, is one of two things will happen, right? Like one, your team will realize how much extra work that you did and how it can't function without you and they'll reward you for it. Or two, you'll get all of your extra time back and you'll only be doing promotable work because you're not taking on all of these glue tasks. So then your team's going to recognize you and you'll get promoted because you're doing the work that is, you're doing that promotable work.
1: I guess that makes sense.
2: Yeah, it's just it it feels weird. I think
1: it's like a hard thing to like <laughs> it's like easy to say, mm-hmm. but then it's like someone someone's got to do
0: it, you know. Cuz you want to be like a team player,
2: but mm-hmm.
0: now you feel like you're not going to be one.
2: Oh yeah, I will say like it is it's hard. It hurt it hurts a little bit especially if you enjoy doing these activities or like, I don't know about you guys, but I'm really bad at micromanaging. So when I see somebody doing something wrong, it's really hard for me to not step in, but you got to just do like that clean break. You've got to just say, you know Mm -hmm. what, not doing it, not stepping in and just like go against your better judgment and just watch the chaos around you happen. Girl boss sometimes, (laughs) (laughs) right? (laughs) Like sometimes it's almost better to watch everything crash and burn when your hands aren't in it, because then you know, okay, look, it's like a validating right, thing. Right. It's like, look how awesome this is going with me. And then without me, the whole thing <laughs> falls apart. So <laughs> it's not it's not the best feeling, but it gets it gets the point across for sure. Oh, yeah. So I guess what can we take away from this podcast? Honestly, the biggest takeaway for me that I wish someone had told me, and I said it at the, at the beginning, but I'm gonna say it again, is don't do a job just because someone thinks you'd be good at it, do it because you want to and do it because it makes you happy. Like, don't let somebody bully you into something just because you have good communication or you have good handwriting. If you don't want to be the one taking the notes and sending out the emails, don't take the notes and send out the emails. Pick up the technical story or do something, do something that engages you. Like, Really advocate for yourself and and be assertive about what you want,
1: and don't be afraid to reach out to your manager, any mentors you have at the office, because I'm sure they're here to support you in your career. You just have to speak up about it.
2: Mm-hmm. And I think because this is something people don't really talk about, it's not something most managers will have a vocabulary for. So I think also bringing this up to them and saying and saying, hey, like have you heard about this concept of glue tasks? Well, let me tell you about it a little bit and tell you why I think it applies to me and why this is hurting me. And let's make a plan to get back on track. I I think that's the biggest thing is, you're, you're really the one driving your career. You're the one driving your destiny. You're the one who has the power to say no. So you have to be the one to stand up for yourself and course correct. Because that's something that's really different from high school and college is you're the one really in the driver's seat. And if you don't look out for yourself, nobody else will. (laughs) I know that sounds really bleak, but it's up to you to make a difference. Better yet, send your manager this podcast. (laughs) Yes, send this to your manager. And then while you're doing that, go ahead and follow us on social media so you can stay up to date with all of our different content. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at HerHacksPodcast. Podcast. And we're still a relatively new podcast. So if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review and let us know. We would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening. Go out there and be great.